morning. Good, good morning. It's Don. <laughs> good morning, Ben. Is your is your call recorder working? It is. Mine not. is too. Oh, it's not. It is not. What oh. is happening? Uh, it is here, but it's not recording. I checked it. <sighs> That's not good. Call record. It's grayed out. The the little red button's grayed out, Don. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, uh, what 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 should we what should we do? Should we should we go with go with your version and you throw it in Dropbox for me? That and, works. Okay, let's do that. We'll, we'll, we'll live I'm life talking. on the edge. No belt and suspenders. Just a belt or suspenders. Right. Right. Like uh, maybe like a drawstring. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we've, Merle, we've tied. Yeah, we've tied. It's got some elasticity to it. I've, we've tied it off. Um, and if I mean, if that thing goes, it goes. It's gonna be. It's gonna be trouble. <laughs> um, what? What? Uh, as they say on, um, I, I think one of those uh, TV morning shows. What's uh, What's going on in your neck of the woods? You got You got any rain? We. Uh, <laughs> Anything going on there? Um, not yet. So the rain is on its way. Uh, I, I guess it passed through your neck of the woods, and uh, it's on its way to uh, my neck of the woods. It was a, there's a little. Uh, we had a little rain yesterday, but it wasn't uh, tropical storm rain. Um, and uh, yeah, and then a little bit of. Uh, it's dark. Uh, it's it's overcast, and uh, yeah, the rain and the wind are, are coming. Well, I'm going to tell you about your future. Okay, um, please do. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a, a soothsayer, okay. uh, as, it's, as, yeah, as it's known in, uh, I think, medieval times. Um, and I hope, hopefully that's not a problematic term. I don't even know. Uh, I, I, I might be canceled. I've got to do my research. Um, uh, we, we had a hurricane come through here late, late last well, night. Well, tropical, tropical storm. Well, it was no? it was a hurricane. Oh, it was, it was a hurricane? hurricane. Okay. Yeah. Like yeah, a hurricane? Like, <laughs> it, it, was, it rocked me like a hurricane. <laughs> And, and you are like a hurricane. Uh, both, both. There's calm in my eye, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, so so it was. Uh, I, I would say uh, pretty pretty uh, as hurricanes go for for us here in Raleigh. There there was a little more well, a little more hype because it was going to come close to us, mm. and uh, it it moved very quickly and and everything went very smoothingly smooth smoothing, smoothingly. smoothly. Smoothingly. Very smoothingly. And it's beautiful here and cool now. Like it's it's like 70 degrees and not a cloud in the sky and no no limbs came down. Our power didn't go out. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I shared this with you. Uh, you I, I told Danny this last night. You know, I live in a place. Um, you picked a podcast uh, host who lives in a place <laughs> who, who constantly is dealing with some sort of weather event that is not like – I mean, snow for the vast majority of the northern hemisphere is not a big deal. Here in North Carolina, I get some snow. I got to cancel, cancel a podcast. Uh, we we get hurricanes. Sometimes the power goes out. I, I I didn't know. I mean, I guess I knew about that before I moved here, but I never really understood um, it, understood it. And now I find myself. So so first of all, I told Danny um, I had to send you a text last night saying, "Oh yeah, we're having a hurricane, and I don't know if I'll have power. Hopefully, everything's fine." And and thought I've sent multiple texts like this to you. Like this isn't my first what weather event. Sorry, I might have to reschedule the podcast. And and Danny said, so does does Don ever send you texts like that? I'm like, no, no, he, because he he lives in New Jersey where if it rains or snows, nothing nothing really happens. It's fine. It's here in North Carolina. It's like a big deal when we get weather. Well, we did we did uh, have us we did have Superstorm Sandy. Um, you know, uh, uh, right. at some 
some point, right? So we do get we do get weather. The power does go out. Um, sometimes my internet goes out. Um, we've talked about that. Um, we had the power go out, which made my internet go out, and they had to uh, reboot the terminal um, <laughs> to fix it. True. But uh, true, you know, true. eventually, once I once I got Verizon on the case, they they took care of it. So you know, I, it's not like it wouldn't ever happen. But yeah. But you're just just like in everything else, timing, preparation, content, you're the reliable one. When well, it comes to weather and the other things, I'm the unreliable one. And I this is this is something that I uh, I, I, I I've just keyed into it. <laughs> now, after <laughs> two hundred and so episodes, it's me. Don, it's me. I'm the unreliable one. So are we the baddies? <laughs> we might be the baddies. Uh, um, so yeah, well, it's okay. I mean, you want you want as a as a podcast co-host, you want someone who's good, but just not as good as you. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I'm. And like, so I here's the thing. I, I didn't. I, thought, I didn't. I didn't pick a, a a distinguished professor to do a podcast with. I, I picked uh, an associate professor who became a professor. So it's fine. Oh, it's true. It's true. And but here's the thing. I thought I was the one. I was the better one. And it turns out I'm not. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> I, my call recorder doesn't work. The little red button's grayed out. I'm, but I was on time today. I made coffee. I'm ready. You were re- uh, you were ready before me. I actually I'm sitting there. I ha- I finished my breakfast. That's eight thirty. I got time to have easily to have a, one cup of coffee and have another cup for the show. And and then here it is, like like two minutes to eight, two minutes to nine, and um, I'm still making my. I'm uh, still making my my second coffee, so I mean, obviously, I I could have planned better, but I, you know, I I I knew it's like it's it's fine. I mean, we've got we've got two hours to do the show. I have a, a semi hardish out at the end, but it's your show to to do the the edits on. Right. So we'll we'll be everything will be fine. So um, I have I have a a, a, a semi hardish out at at eleven <laughs> now too. Um, and I will, it's a, it's food safety related, and I want to I want to come come back. Oh, mine, can, mine I mean, is too. Jump yeah. Into it. yeah. Let's do it. So, so this is uh, it, it's one of those uh, very special episodes of Food Safety Talk where we actually start <laughs> um, right, uh, ten minutes in uh, mm-hmm. talking about food safety. So, uh, hey, I'm doing a, I'm doing an interview at eleven o'clock uh, for um, uh, a media outlet called Everyday Health. Um, and, uh, a journalist uh, named Janissa, uh, is con- has contacted me and she said, uh, I know you've been slammed with media requests, which is not entirely true. Um, it was a while ago, but right now it's, it's been kind of slow. Um, but I'm wondering if you had a few moments for a brief comment via phone or email, um, a- about, um, uh, oh, <laughs> I was like, I, I know it's in here cause I know what I've, I've done a little prep for about the, uh, the onion recall by Thompson. Mm. International. Uh, so uh, she linked me to an an internet uh, uh, page, web web page uh, from FDA.gov that we'll uh, put in the show notes. It says uh, Thompson International uh, conducts voluntary recall of red, yellow, white, and sweet yellow onions because of a uh, possible salmonella risk. And so, um, so there's uh, a whole bunch of salmonella going on. You, we were. Uh, I, I was away last last weekend or last week. I went on, I did a little uh, vacationing in the mountains of, of North Carolina in, in Appalachia, and uh, cute, cute and the dueling banjos music. Yeah, yeah, there was a, there were there were there were uh, triplet banjos at, at one play, one point, um, <laughs> but but, but uh, none, none of the other more memorable aspects of the of that movie. <laughs> Of deliverance, no, no that was that was as close as, as close as it got. That's good. That's good. 
Um, so, but, but some, some, I guess, uh, stuff happened, not, I guess stuff, stuff happened where we had all this salmonella that was happening in Canada and the U S first it was in the U S and then there were the, the, there were cases that were linked, uh, in Canada. Uh, and, uh, then, um, our friends at, and, and I really, and my, uh, my comrades, I would say, uh, because I come from socialist, uh, <laughs> liberal left Canada, um, uh, broke, broke some news and they said, you know what? Um, uh, there's a salmonella linked to red onions and, uh, don't eat red onions. And then that led to FDA saying, you know, there's some salmonella linked to red onions here in the U S and, uh, here's, here's the recall. So, so I'm talking, so I'm talking, you know, I'm, I'm doing right now. I'm doing my prep with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, for this for this interview and questions that I haven't got the list of questions, but I think the questions are going to be, is this surprising? Right. So so mm-hmm. reserve your reserve your comments until I list them all. Is this is this surprising? Um, it, how how does salmonella get into onions? What can we as consumers do about salmonella in my onions and uh, do you have anything else that you'd like to talk about? Because that's how every interview <laughs> yeah. ends. Is there anything I haven't asked you about? So, so what? Yeah. So, so what, what do you think? Is this is this a surprising recall uh, slash? Well, recall really uh, prompted by an outbreak. Is it a surprising outbreak? Well, so, I guess so. The, the 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 short answer is yes, and, and and it's surprising, just because we really haven't had as and I didn't do any googling here, but I we have we haven't had any previous outbreaks with salmonella and onions. So so it's surprising in that we haven't had it before. Yes, um, surprising in that um, that it happened. Well, you know, salmonella is is one of those organisms. <clears throat> Where if you had to pick an organism 30 years ago to study, you probably would be all right if you picked salmonella because it's in every it can be in everything. Right. It it can be in uh, produce. It can be in dry foods. It can be in meat and poultry. It is it is really a ubiquitous. Now, let's not say ubiquitous because I I get upset when people say listeria is ubiquitous, but it's in a lot of different kinds of foods. And so is it surprising that it could get into onions? No. Is it surprising in this case that it did? I, I I guess yes, because because we haven't seen it before, right? Hello, are you on mute? Are you gone? Have I rendered hello, you? Hello, yes. Hello, can oh, you hear me? Oh I can my hear gosh, you. I was on mute. <laughs> I'm back. Okay. So here's here's the thing with the with Skype that we use every two weeks. Did you get confused <laughs> I, about the buttons again? Oh shit! Um, yeah, there's a white. It's the, the I, I I hit the white button uh, for the microphone, uh, and then I started talking, and then I thought, oh no, I'm not on mute. Uh, now I'm now I'm on mute. Now I'm not on mute. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm I'm also surprised, and, and for the exact same reason that, that you said, it's not the first time we've seen onions linked to a uh, a foodborne illness re- recall or foodborne illness outbreak. I don't know why I'm saying recall so much. Um, and, and so there, there was, uh, also, also a Canadian link, uh, an outbreak linked to white onions that were, um, uh, diced at a restaurant at, in, in North Bay, Ontario in 2000 and, oh gosh, uh, 2008, 2009, maybe 2008, I think it was. 
Uh, so uh, this the story's the story from 2009 that you just sent me. It is, but oh, the outbreak out, was from October. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, to, to November. You're correct. Ah. That's what it made me confused, too. Got it. Um, and the reason why – so I, I moved from Canada to the U.S. in late 2008, and I remember this happening while I was in Canada. So it, it like, freaked me out. I was like, no, I, 2009, that can't be right. Uh, anyway – so uh, Outbreak was linked to a, a, an onion dicer at one re retail outlet, one restaurant that had, um, according to the Outbreak investigation, had, had never been cleaned or sanitized. Uh, and so there was uh, over well, why would you? I mean, why would you? Why would you? Right? Why, would you need why, to, why, why would you need to clean and sanitize a piece of food processing equipment in your restaurant? <laughs> that, that touches a <laughs> that touches food, food yeah. that, you, that you put on. Almost every meal that you make at Harvey's, uh, it, which is a national hamburger chain. Yeah. So, um, well, and, and the outbreak investigation said inconsistent cleaning of the onion dicer may have perpetuated the contamination for several days. Um, and so there was some, you know, so that, so that that's a, a thing, right? But that's a totally different onion situation than what we're looking at in this outbreak where we've got red onions and and that that's what the epidemiology has been linked to and what i've heard from from people on the on the inside and people and people on the outside people all over many people are saying gone that uh part of the problem uh, epidemiologically with this identifying this outbreak is or was that many of the individuals were eating uh, at mexican style restaurants and eating salsa uh, or pico de gallo, which has lots of different foods that we have seen salmonella with uh, associated yep. with in the past. Yep. yep. Um, so you know, let, let's take the pico de gallo that I make at home. Um, I put tomatoes in it. I put red onions in it. I put cilantro in it, and I put um, serrano or jalapeno peppers in it. And uh, you know, I don't have my bell here, but wait, I wait, hold on, hold on. Give me read, read off read off that list one more time. Thank you. Yeah, let's do a little fully here. Uh, tomatoes. <laughs> Oh, someone's printing in my office right now. So that's what <laughs> else is happening in the background. Uh, it's not, there's not a, a, a truck backing up. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. So tomatoes. Uh, next one, uh, cilantro. Um, uh, let's go with serrano or jalapeno peppers. And now uh, red onion. Yeah. The other that's thing a... that I put in there, which I don't think we can put a ding on, is uh, with a little bit of salt and a little bit of lime juice. Yeah, um, no, no dings so, for those. Yeah, no, no dings for those. But but that's that's part of the the reason why things get a little messy. We're we're looking at a a, a common a, a food dish that's made in lots of different places, made fresh from lots of ingredients. With that all that uh, you know, every dish contains all four of those, right? Like you don't have a a red onion pico de gallo right. that would help with right. this this epidemiological investigation. Um, so so anyway, that's that that's that's happening. But what I so yeah, it's not it's not uh, it is surprising. The other thing with you know the this other white onion outbreak was it was processed, right? So you've got cutting, you've got touching. This piece of equipment touched every single onion that went through this Harvey's restaurant. Um, we we've seen. And th this is one where I think people get a little – I don't know if they get confused, but I am sure that uh, I will see more um, uh, references to green onions linked to uh, E. coli back in the mid oh, – late, late 1990s, early 2000s because there are a whole bunch of outbreaks uh, linked to green onions. Green onions to me are different, right? They're not – 
it's onions in the name, but the they're, way they're more like a, a herb, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. They're or or I mean, I would call them chives, right? Isn't isn't right. that what green onions are, right? I mean, yeah. you, and you're eating a different part of the. Uh, of the of the animal of a different part yeah. of the, the fruit of the vegetable um right yeah <laughs> one of those and, it, and it's and it's handled differently oh right? yeah like, for sure well like, yeah i mean and the, and the green onions the famous green onions outbreak is is hepatitis a um uh from chi chi's restaurant right where it was contaminated at harvest whereas the, yeah this was probably contaminated at harvest but it's uh and it's also complicated by the fact that Apparently, this company Thompson International sells a lot of different kinds of onions, and there's and the, and part of the reason why the recommendation is to avoid all of these is that you know these are handled as fresh produce items, and so there's not probably not clean breaks, and there's probably cross contact, cross contamination on surfaces, right? So if the potentially implicated red onions were on a belt, and then you rolled some white onions on that same belt, well, the white onions might have salmonella too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, absolutely. And and this is a common situation that we have in in the world of, of fresh produce. Um, we've seen other outbreaks linked to uh, lines that were used for multiple different products and leading to contamination of those you know products separately. Can I, I'm, I'm going to read I'm going to read from Facebook because um, just because we haven't done that for a while. But um, but two very smart friends of the podcast uh, had a had a little conversation. I'm gonna I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna dox them uh, on on Facebook here because I think they they provided uh, both really good insight that I am just going to echo um, in in any conversation that I that I have. And so uh, one one friend of the podcast asked food safety friends how does salmonella get into onions? With the last case, was it cross contamination during storage, shipping, or something in the field? And then a uh, friend of the show, friend of ours, uh, Reading buddy, uh, Michelle Daniluk, wrote, uh, it probably started in the field, but the volume recalled makes me think there was no documented clean break in the packing house. So there was a potential for a lot of cross-contamination, like season's worth of cross-contamination during packing and storage. To be fair, it's really hard to clean and sanitize a dry packing house like onions. And, you know, exactly. And then Dr. Critter, um, uh, Faith, Faith Kreitzer, uh, also friend of the show, uh, said uh, uh, 100 with Michelle, low-level mm -hmm. contamination from the field most likely had an opportunity to grow and cross-contaminate, and a lot of crop based on, upon the numbers of illnesses. Salmonella is really great at hanging out in these dry environments and growing. When given the opportunity, we'll see how we can use the information from this investigation to help others not repeat. Um, and so it, so anyway, that that's... Yeah. yeah, and the only thing I would say is I'm not sure um, if there was any growth, right? I would agree with everything that Michelle and Faith said, with the exception of Faith's comment about growth. I don't think you have to have growth. Um, I think you can get contamination in the field, and if it's a large enough um, contamination event, uh, you could you could get an outbreak of this size um, without, without having any growth. Now, that said, I would be very interested to know... Um, what how how those onions were grown how they were transported what does the packing house look like all of that would be very interesting because if, if we went on a tour and we could see all of that we might see opportunities for growth but i'm i'm not i mean i, I and again I'm, I'm handicapped because i don't know enough about how onions are are grown and handled to know if there would be that but i i don't I got to think that it, it, it's a best practice with onions to keep them dry, right? Because you could get quality loss if there's a lot of moisture around. 
Absolutely. Let me uh, submit to you Mm -hmm. um, exhibit A in my argument about growth. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I just sent you Mm -hmm. uh, an article uh, from uh, 2000 and well, that it doesn't really matter when it was from, but it was about the 2008 outbreak of Salmonella St. Paul infections associated with raw produce. And one thing that I really, um, I, 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 this is one of those, those papers that are on my speed dial, mm-hmm. um, similar to the, the P train paper that we've talked about so much and, and use, um, this, this outbreak in 2008, Salmonella St. Paul initially was linked to tomatoes and then subsequently was, was, you know, erroneously linked to tomatoes, most, most likely, um, based on all the data that's out there, uh, and then subsequently linked to, to, to peppers. But there is a, a, a passage in this that I would talk like, and this is where my, my retail world sort of comes in. Growth of the salmonella may not have been at all on the onions, but it could be how we handle pico de gallo and salsa in retail settings. So we have a little bit of salmonella and then I put it into this Pico and maybe my pH is above 4.6 or, or five, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And then it sits at room temperature for gosh. I mean, Don, in, in certain situations I've seen salsa be like flavored at, uh, at, at room temperature overnight. So th- this is in, in the retail, in, w- which would be, you know, outside of the food code, this is why cut to, and diced tomatoes and, and those dishes are, are uh, temperature control for safe TCS foods, temperature control for safety foods. But it, it is not um, – it would not surprise me if there was room temperature holding of this – like we introduce the, salmon, the salmonella from the onions into the salsa and then hold it at room temperature for uh, 12, 15 hours. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And if that, that, that kind of growth, I absolutely I – just, I just wondering about opportunities for growth in, in, whole, uh, in yeah. whole onions. But no, once it's, once it's chopped, yeah, all bets are off and you can most definitely um, see growth depending upon the pH. Uh, and I suspect if you went out and you sampled a bunch of pico de gallos or you made a bunch of pico de gallos with different recipes out there, they're, they're all going to be at a pH that will – allow salmonella to grow for sure. I would, yeah, I would, I would think so, at least in some of the, the environments within there, right. Depending on how much, well, and, and uh, this, you know, read from this new journal, new New England journal of medicine article. However, salsa and guacamole are kept at room temperature for hours in some commercial settings. The addition of both fresh garlic and lime juice to salsas can suppress the growth of salmonella. Um, but one, one salsa, salsa does not rule them all. There are so many, so many, um, different, uh, recipes and ratios. So, so anyway, this, yeah, I I feel like we're in the midst of an interesting, one of these, these outbreaks and, and we talked about this, I I think multiple times again, someone's printing, um, here, here in my office, um, my son's, uh, the school, um, uh, calendar. Um, we, we've talked a bunch about, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, uh, all of the uh, public health resources being focused on that. And now here we are with a foodborne illness outbreak that that is sizable. Um, I mean, we're talking, I, I think we're, we're well over 500 cases in between Canada and the U.S. Um, right now. And, uh, you know, just just the I, I'll, I'll I'll speak um, 
uh, you know, a little bit on uh, without doxing someone. But, you know, we've got lots of friends in the public health world. Um, I've got someone who uh, who I know who works on outbreaks all the time. And this individual has been pulled into um, focusing on coronavirus related um, control in the food system. And uh, and the individual said, gosh, I, ha- I I am on our outbreak team and I didn't hear anything about this, this onion linked recall. And we have cases in our state. So that, that was, you know, a couple of weeks ago. But but I think it just highlighted to me how when we're we're in the, in the midst of this resource intensive response, um, it, it makes a it makes a foodborne illness outbreak and the response and the communication of it even more difficult because we're we're now competing with you know all the other um, news of the day around the the other illnesses that are happening. It's 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 pretty it's pretty striking. Yeah, and I <clears throat> my my I mean so obviously there's some interesting things that we can learn uh, um, from this outbreak. I what I would really love to to have access to, and we will, we will more than likely never get it is what were the back channel <clears throat> conversations, right? What were the, conver- cause I'm sure I I'm, I'm fairly sure that our colleagues <clears throat> at FDA talk to our colleagues in health Canada, um, when stuff like this is going on and, and obviously Canada made the decision to make the announcement before, um, we did in the U S and, and for probably for good epidemiological reasons, um, I would be really interested to hear what those conversations were. And I would be, you know, again, as, as we've often talked about on this, on this podcast, the wonderful quote from Paul Mead about, um, you know, too early and too late and being right and being wrong, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> um, you know, and what were the what was the decision? Why did Canada, um, um, you know, dis, what was the epi that, that basically made them decide to announce? And why was FDA slower to announce or CDC slower to announce? And then, you know, what, what uh, to what role was, uh, you know, Bill Marler's uh, shaming of FDA and CDC, um, you know, uh, with this? What role did, did he have to play in all of this? And how and I, of course, I'm sure he's not necessarily talking to them, but they're for sure reading what he's writing and and i wonder to what extent and of course you never have a perfect experiment where you you know in one case marler writes his blog post in the other case he doesn't and and see how the world is different right but um all of that is stuff i'm very interested in in as well uh we'll probably never learn any of that but and we may never even learn the the actual root cause of the outbreak but there's probably a higher chance that we're gonna we're gonna learn about the outbreak rather than the back channel uh politics Right, right. Well, and and this is I, I wrote about this in a um, in an, a paper a few years ago about going public. This is a this is the you kind of nailed the situation. Um, I might my assumption is FDA has data that they're looking at. It looks like, and you know, I, I talked about the Mexican um, style dishes and salsa being complicating. It looks like it's something that's in there, but we don't know what which one it is. And the U.S. has um, public health and politics uh, go go hand in hand as we've lived for mm. the last mm-hmm. right. Like, oh, there's the understatement of the podcast. Um, but as we're as we're currently living, and so FDA and CDC have been, um, I don't know, slapped on the wrist for for not sharing enough information or getting the tomatoes in 2008 wrong. And that's 12 years ago, but that's still. 
there there are still enough people in the food safety world that remember that that situation and, and the economic impact that it had. So, oh, yeah. So there's there's a lot of tomato people that are still really pissed about that, I'm sure. Right, right, right. So, so there's, so there's that, that fallout, right? So we better, we better make sure that we've got it right. If we, if we go, if we go public with it. Um, and then you've got, uh, a couple of situations with romaine lettuce that we've lived through in the last, like since 2016 in California, uh, well, and, and in Yuma, Arizona, where, um, it was all romaine. Then we, you know, sort of got it to a geographic location where it could have been shipped from during the time period that people started having symptoms. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of pushback uh, from the industry and pu- public outcry. And so, so my my guess is, and and again, this is not with with any sort of data, but my guess is there's your FDA is a little bit gun shy. Because you've got to be you got to have enough justification to go to go public with this where Health Canada, Public Health Agency of Canada doesn't have that same political history in this area. So they go first. Right. Oh, we don't care. We don't care how not not we don't care if we're right or wrong, but we have enough information that we think that we will go public with it. And then, as you said, you know, Marler tweets about it, writes about it, and and that maybe pushes um, our federal agencies to move quicker than they would have been because they were being cautious because of this history. And that like that entire situation, right? Like what we just talked about for for eight minutes um, is not something that story is is tough to tell if you're if you haven't been around it for the last 15 years right like like someone who's new in food safety someone who's uh, a, a student who started may not have may not have seen all of those can't connect all those dots of uh, this is why we're making um, decisions in in going forward and that that you know what they what they see and and, and certainly what consumers see is is that Canada had some information and then they went public and then the US had some information and maybe it's the same information maybe it's different but then they went they went public with this this announcement um and and who knows like I, I agree with you what what those conversations with the phone calls what any of the emails what information was shared like i i always wonder whether um whether one federal agency shares their epidemiology with another federal agency in another country saying, here's how we're making this decision. Um, and, and if that, you know, how, how that plays out. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It is a, an interesting, um, it's, it would be a very, uh, interesting story to follow from the inside. Yeah. And the other, the other thing, I think that has to be weighed, and I'm just looking at the CDC uh, timeline, um, is like, what's the nature of the food, right? I mean, with romaine, it's got a relatively short shelf life. Um, and so you, you, by the time you decide to do a recall, basically the product may be, you know, eaten or compost or whatever, right? Onions have a longer um, shelf life. Uh, it's there. It's not, and it's not like uh, ice cream or or peanut butter or something that has an incredibly long shelf life, uh, where you for sure um, once you figure it out, you can cert- definitely do some good um, by by recalling those products because they are likely on the market. Onions are somewhere in the in the middle. I'm not really sure what the what the shelf life of onions would be, but I, I've got to suspect that it's longer than romaine lettuce, right? Because these are oh, typically sure. things that are. Now that's another interesting thing too, right? Like. Um, with, with foods that support the growth 
higher temperatures mean faster growth. But with foods like onions that uh, allow the survival, um, the higher temperatures mean uh, faster uh, inactivation over time, mm-hmm. right? And so I'm really, and I, and I don't know, again, what, in the distribution chains, how do, we, how do we handle these onions? Are they at all refrigerated? Um, what role does that play? But yeah, I don't know. It's just a very... Uh, the the uh, yeah, it's it's very it's very interesting. Um, I should look, take a look a closer look at this timeline and see if I can figure out some because you know I did I did some. It's got me interested. It's the work we've been doing with flowers is looking at the timelines and then from the timelines sort of assuming a, a single uh, contamination event and then and looking at well see this 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 growth in cases. Is, doesn't make sense from the point of view of, of inactivation of the organism. So, right, it doesn't, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not being very articulate here, but I'm just looking at the timeline and trying to think to back, to reverse, to back into um, survival kinetics of the organism. And it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't add up. So, yeah. Hmm. Well, and, and, and also, uh, I think we talked about this in the last episode, but I think we've got a real limitation with these timelines right now because of the impacts of coronavirus and the public health infrastructure. Oh, for right? sure. Like there's, for sure. Right. So we're, we're probably not seeing even illnesses that were the date of illness onset back in early July being reported yet because of backlogs and, and people doing other things as part of their job. So so it's not a it's not a complete we, we don't have a complete picture yet. One. One other thing, and you made me think about this when you talked about this, I guess the nature of the product, and this is the the challenge in a recall situation like this, which is, uh, Don, do you, I mean, do you guys buy red onions at, at home? This is, this is me asking you as a, as a, as a friend and colleague and concerned about your health. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I, I'm going to say no, right? Like for, I can probably walk down to our pantry now and I can probably find you a white onion. I can probably okay. find you a yellow onion. I, in the past, although not right now, I could find you a, a sweet onion or a Vidalia as they say, but those have to actually be from Vidalia. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Before okay, you can call so. them Vidalia. But, but red onions, you know, and I, you know, and, and yeah, I don't, and, and, you know, it's, it's interesting. So our, um, a place we haven't been in a while, which is at our local mall. There's a, a gyro place, and they always put red onions on the salad. And I and I just I say don't put the onions on the salad because they taste disgusting, right? And red onions oh. are interesting in that sometimes sometimes they just taste like vile, like dirt, and other times they taste okay. But so my recommendation with I, red onions are generally something that I avoid, at least in, in that context. And so, and that to, to loop back to your actual question, no, I don't think we buy and consume red onions on a regular basis. Well, we, we are a red onion consuming family. Huh? Um, yeah. And I, I, and, and I would, I will choose a Why? red onion over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess that vile taste that you describe is what I like. Uh, I, I, I find them a little, I don't know. They, I, I guess they, um, uh, they they do better for me in dicing, like they stand up better mm. in pico de gallo. If I'm going to eat a hamburger or a hot dog, I, the, things that like those are things that I put onions in uh, raw. If it's going to be a raw onion, I will choose a red onion over uh, a white or a yellow onion. If I'm going to cook the onions, if I'm going to render them, you know, or render is not even the right term, but if I'm going to cook them down and I'm going to use that as part of a dish. Um, saute them, then I'm going to use white, uh, or, or even, uh, shallots. Hmm. Um, but 
the, but but for the purpose of this example, what you what you have uh, in your in your pantry will do just fine, um, because I don't need you to make a dish or a hero. Um, what I what I need you to do is tell me whether any of your your onions came from Thompson International, because I can tell you I have no idea. Because I buy an onion that is on a shelf that has no sticker on it. It's in bulk. I don't buy anything that um, that that has any sort of label. I can't. I, I just go to the grocery store and I grab an onion. And so this recall is very difficult, right? I now have to look at the retailers. And again, the printing is printing. Still it's fine. Yeah. So it's it's good. It's full. Someone's printing. Someone's sending me a fax about onions. I guess. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I've got to go to to the announcement that FDA has. I've got to look at the bags of onions of Thompson. I don't buy bags. I buy individual onions. So it's like this. Tom, if you if you look at the FDA link, um, they they have fresh onions that look like red onions in a box with the Thompson logo on it. I'll never see that box because I buy an onion off the shelf. Um, so it, uh, this is a real. It's going to be a like. So it's different from. Fresh Express or um, T, you know TNA or you know Dole. You know we think about our um, outbreaks that have been linked to um, to uh, romaine or other lettuce. It's it's easier because I can see a label on the bag. I know what that looks like, or or at least not even I know what it looks like. I have an opportunity as a consumer to look in my bag or in my fridge for a bag or for. Uh, a clamshell or a box that has a label, but in my my red onions, there's nothing. There's nothing on them, right? So right. Well, I, and, so and, what, what? Well, what do I do? I well, my onions. What 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 I what I did just now is I went. Uh, I just did a Google search for Wegman's onions recall, and uh, I don't see that them being recalled from uh, from Wegman's, and so that's that's good because uh, that's probably where our onions came from. Although not always, there are other places that we shop. So and yeah, and like like you, we may occasionally get something in a bag. It just depends upon what we need. And again, be, with the uh, pandemic, uh, choices have been sometimes limited, and so. So, you know, we, I know, for example, we've been buying um, lemons and limes, uh, which are in a bag, uh, like a loose mesh bag. Um, and, and that's not always the case. Um, but, yeah, it's not like uh, chopped uh, lettuce that is coming in with a label on it and you know where it came from. So, yeah. Yeah. So this it's going to and this is. Like for all the reasons you talked about, we've got a much longer shelf life of this product. The salmonella um, over over time, if it's dry, will will persist. Um, if like you said, the, as the temperatures go up, it may you know that that may uh, change how much is there. Um, but you know the, this, I, I I do feel like this outbreak is not. It's not over. We haven't we haven't solved it. Well, we've solved it, but we 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 there there almost certainly could be red onions in my we we have a little um, like plastic bin that we keep in our pantry for root vegetables, and almost certainly there's a red onion in there, or there there, there isn't now, but there could be a red onion. Um, in there that I purchased like six weeks ago. And so, so when you, when you heard about this, uh, recall or this outbreak, uh, I guess it's both, um, did, did you dump your onion? Well, so I went to look to see if we had any red onions and we didn't. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I would have, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would have, and, or I would have like, and here's the thought process. I, we don't, there's not a lot of foods that I cook red onions in. Right. So right. it's, if it was some other, like, it was something that I would typically eat cooked, and I'm like, well, we'll cook that up. 
Right. Um, so, but yeah, that's, and then, you know, there, there is this, uh, just going back to what Michelle and, and Faith talked about in, in their Facebook uh, discourse, um, there, there is a cross-contamination potential. I don't know what the transfer from a red onion to the bin that I store all my other root vegetables is in is. I don't, I don't, I don't have a good sense of that. Um, I, I, I do. I say it's low. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd <laughs> but, say it's low too. But not yeah. zero. Right. Right. And so what, what else could I do? Well, I'm going to empty out that bin. Empty out the bin. What, yep. And, and wash it, wash, yep. you know, clean and clean and sanitize it yep. and then put it back and yep. not, and, and that was it. Um, but really for almost everything else that we keep in that bin, we cook. So even there, I had a really low, low risk. So, so in that, now you, this is, it's all about my, my pantry bin. Um, I, I put sweet potatoes in there. I put, um, regular potatoes. Uh, I, I might put some, some white onions, some shallots, some garlic and some red onions and everything else in that list. I will cook before I eat. Right. So even there, like it's the, the, the risk in my own house is, as I would say, uh, I, I would look at as, as really, really low. Um, so I've got one more thing before we leave this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got an, so, so here's another, like, you know, I guess situation that's a little bit about coronavirus and a little bit about food safety, which is what our podcast is about now. Um, and I got an email from from someone who works in uh, a county here in North Carolina, uh, who uh, is uh, runs a local foods program. So they they work for NC State University as part of uh, our our NC State Extension program. Um, and so I'll, I'll redact this. But good morning, Ben, because it always starts very nicely. Um, my name is Redacted, and I'm the local foods coordinator at X County Cooperative Extension. I just left you a voicemail about the onion recall we were informed of late on Friday. We support produce. This is the part that's important. We support support produce box distribution through the CFAP program with another organization. And the CFAP program, I think, is uh, it's the food assistance program, but it's related to COVID-19. Um, as you can see below, there's a, a voluntary recall of red and yellow onions that may have been in boxes we helped distribute last week. With guidance from this organization and Ward's Produce, which is who they got their onions from, we've reached out to our partners who did the physical distribution last week to inform them on the protocols outlined below so they can inform their community. Um, and so I'll read from the protocols. And this is what came from Ward Produce. To all our value partners in the USDA Farmers to Families Food Box Program, please read the attached onion recall notice from our vice president, Joey McNeil. Words Produce has been notified of a voluntary recall of red onions today that may be linked to a salmonella outbreak for the entire continental U.S. and Canada. If you are on this email distribution list, you may, this is in caps, Hmm. have received some of the onions affected by the recall on your shipment received Tuesday uh, 728, Wednesday 729, Thursday 730, and Friday 731. We've been in contact with the sales agent, Onions 52, out of Syracuse, Utah, and a notice from them is attaching is attached to Utah in the voluntary recall. Out of abundance of caution, we're requesting that if you have any boxes left with those loose pack red onions or three-pound pack in mesh yellow bag mesh yellow onions, that you discard all boxes and all contents due to the potential, albeit extremely unlikely, chance of cross-contamination. Um, and then they go say that food safety is their number one um, uh, thing. Uh, number number one priority, blah, 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 blah. So 
so this is the, you know, so that, that was, that, that was the information that I got. Um, I, I was contacted by this agent on, uh, yesterday on, on Monday morning. Um, the, you know, the recall uh, was, was announced, uh, over the weekend or late Friday. I think the information came out on, on FDA, like Friday after six, six o'clock. And so here's one of the, like, uh, this, this is not, this is not calling out the, the food assistance program, but one of the things that that coronavirus and our current economic situation has done is is it's put people who are not handling food all the time into a situation where they're handling food and distributing food for all the right reasons, right? But in a in a restaurant situation, in a commercial food si- situation, if information came out on Friday night. Um, someone is, is usually monitoring this. Like it doesn't, and I would say someone and there are cases where it's not this, but, but if this is what you're doing as your full-time job. You're, you, this, this raises to a level of urgency that, that you have information about something that you've got to go do something with it. And now that means contacting people that you've shared this produce with and telling them whether they need to, um, you know, get, get rid of it. And some of that happened over the weekend with this individual situation. But when I talked to the agent, um, uh, she mentioned to me that you know she had called some people on Saturday, but hadn't heard back, and and so didn't know whether they received her message or what they did with the product, um, and and this is, you know, having an outbreak in the midst of a pandemic again is not not something that is is good. The risk is is, is I think probably pretty low, um, but if you have an illness that arises because of a delay in information because the infrastructure isn't built to handle this that that's a that's a problem that's kind of on us in the in the food world um to 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 address it um so so anyway that that was like on the real macro level around this situation but then right down to what we're what we're dealing with here um here in my state and i I would assume this example is existing all over the u.s there are lots of uh, public health folks, extension folks that are distributing food as part of um, our current assistance program because of our, our economic situation that was caused by this terrible pandemic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> challenging times. Damn, it makes me sad, Don. Like, like it makes me this. I'm gonna get emotional here because mm. it makes me sad that we could have had we like really focused on this. In, oh, I don't know, February and March. Maybe we're not dealing with this at the same level right now. I don't know. I don't, that's, that's just me. Yeah. Maybe if there's yeah. some leadership on this area. Yep. Or if, uh, you know, maybe I, I hear a vaccine's coming. Hmm. I hear cases are going down, except right. if they're, if we're testing more than they're going up. That's right. What I, that's what I hear. That's why. And we're doing, we're doing really good. Uh, I hear we're, we're doing last. better than everyone. Yeah. We're last, which means you're first. <laughs> So what what Ben and I are are, are uh, tangentially referring to is a uh, an Axios uh, interview with um, the the, uh, the 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 person that's in the White House, um, mm-hmm. and it's pretty bad. It's uh, it's anyway, it's not good, very bad. <laughs> you know Ricky Bobby? Do you know that? You know no, that movie? I I, I I no, I don't. You, do you so uh ricky bobby from uh talladega nights oh yes uh, yes 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 character uh one of his uh one of his best quotes and i'm not sure exactly where this came from but it's uh if you're not last year if you're not first you're last and and i yeah if you ain't first you're last 
So if you're, but if you're last and you're first, or is that the? If, I heard if you're last, it's, it's the same as your first. But Ricky Bobby wouldn't wouldn't agree at all. <laughs> we have to we'll have to reach out to Ricky Bobby. Yeah, let's if, if let's get some follow up with Ricky Bobby. Are we still? If we ain't first, are we still? Are we last? Uh, uh, anyway, um, so we we what, what do you want to talk? What do you want to talk about? Oh, there's so many directions we could go, Ben. Um, I I am uh, I have no I have no strong opinions here. Uh, we could talk about um, uh, we could talk about raw butter, which is my phone call oh, at yeah. eleven. We could Let's talk, talk about oh, raw ta- butter. Okay, so I don't know I don't know too much about this, um, but basically uh, this is somebody I've worked with before from uh, Modern Farmer, um, uh, and and uh, they write. Um, I'm writing something for Modern Farmer about an organization which is suing the FDA on behalf of a bunch of dairy farmers to try to get rid of the ban on selling raw butter across state lines. And uh, my um, advice would be, or my my comment is, good luck with that. I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Um, uh, I mean, you can you can sue, but. Um, uh, FDA was, is not, this is an issue where FDA is just not going to back down, right? Uh, they've repeatedly shown that they are, they are going to hold firm on pasteurized dairy products. And, uh, I feel bad if these farmers want to do this. Um, we've talked, um, <laughs> we've talked about, uh, you know, raw milk Amsterdam. I'm sure there's a raw butter Amsterdam <laughs> right out there somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just don't, I just don't think, uh, I don't think they're going to get anywhere with this. So, yeah. So is there, okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm not super familiar with raw milk butter, so I'm Googling and okay. there, there is, is raw milk butter the same as cultured raw milk butter or is that something different? I don't know. I don't know. So, um, so, so uh, I, uh, there's, so here's an article from reason why raw butter producers are suing the FDA. Mm-hmm. Um, raw butter. This is pretty good. This is the subhead. Um, raw butterists are understandably salty about a prohibition on interstate <laughs> commerce. Oh, those salty raw butter <laughs> folks. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're what you're implying with your with your question, which I think is a is a good one, is is there something about raw butter that makes it safer than raw milk, right? And so, exactly. uh, is yeah. is it is it a cultured product? Um, yeah. And then the the question is, I don't, their answer is, I don't know. Um, but yes, uh, it's it's an interesting one. And again, we would need um, we would need some information, right? Um, more information about about what is the lawsuit about, and then also a little bit more information about the safety of cultured uh, raw milk butter. Because I mean, you know, we do have examples of of dairy products that are made with raw milk, raw milk cheeses, for example, where exactly. um, we know that if we get the, the fermentation right and we wait long enough, uh, those pathogens, again, much like the pathogens on the onions or in flour, those pathogens will slowly die over time. Um, and you can reduce, you know, not risk-free, but you can certainly manage the risk up front uh, by having healthy cows and good sanitation. And then you, you manage the risk on the back end by um, uh, holding the product for 60 days or 90 days. And then and then you can sell that. So the yeah, the question is, uh, what's the what's the is the, is it the same with uh, with uh, raw milk butter? Right. And and so I'm, I want to highlight um, one of our friends, friends of the show, 
uh, Dennis D'Amico. Hmm. Um, I don't know if he's a friend of the show, but a friend, friend in real life. Dennis uh, he's, is a professor, associate professor at um, uh, University of Connecticut. And, and he what, – actually one of my – current graduate students um, did her uh, master's work in, in Dennis's lab. And, and he's really looked at this um, aging uh, raw milk cheeses for 60 days. And it, it's a re- like, it's really an interesting one. And, and Carl Custer, who we've talked about on the show before um, is, is someone that we should really have on the show. Cause mm. I think he's, we let's, let's, let's note that. Um, but he's also kind of pointed at the 60 days is, is this, it's not, it's like hand washing where it's not magic. It's, right. it's a some, somewhat arbitrary date that goes back to the 1940s or fifties, I think. Um, and for some pathogens and some cheeses, it works and some pathogens and some cheeses, it doesn't. Um, and it's, uh, yeah. So, so it, it is like, you know, if I could, and, and I guess, you know, if I took my cultured raw, raw milk butter, and held it for 60 days, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's terrible butter, right? Like at the end of it, it's not, it, uh, so I can't, I can't use that 60 day situation, uh, to make it quote safer. Um, but yeah. Okay. Well, good. Well, uh, so what, what are you going to, so, so what are you going to, you're going to say good luck, uh, with suing the FDA cause the FDA. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Uh, good luck. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get anywhere. Um, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe in this political climate, you might. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, don't, I just don't think they're going to have much luck. So yeah, I hate right. to be, I hate to be so negative, but yeah, yeah. And you know, and the other thing too, while, while we're talking about this aging thing, this is something I've been thinking about a lot because it's relevant to coronavirus as well. Um, how long does coronavirus um, survive? Right? How long does salmonella survive in a raw milk cheese? Well. Both of those are the wrong question, right? At the risk of repeating myself, I will repeat myself. It's about the starting concentration, it's about the detection limit, and then it's about the rate of reduction in the middle, right? And all you really need to to know is what's the rate of reduction, right? How fast does coronavirus inactivate on a surface? How fast does salmonella inactivate in a raw milk cheese? And then once you know that rate, then it's just a matter of managing the risk from the starting concentration. So, right, right. But people don't want to. People don't understand that, Ben. I don't. I don't. I don't understand why people don't understand that. And I'm. I went on. I talk about this all the time. And I use my hands. And I say, you see, you can see what I'm doing here. I'm putting my one hand up here. I'm putting my other hand down here. And I'm making a, a thing, a line in the middle with the inactivation. And people still don't understand it. People. People don't understand it. And. Um, yeah, and uh, also uh, people are, things that people don't understand that we have challenges around uh, the logarithmic logarithmic scale, exponential mm-hmm. growth, mm-hmm. Um, risk, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I'll, I'll throw uh, how coronavirus uh, SARS CoV two is uh, transmitted. I think people don't understand that very well. <laughs> yep. Hey, so one yeah. one more thing I would I, I would like to talk about, and then maybe we it also might be worth doing this on um, on risky or not um, is um, uh, and this has come up again. Uh, I I'm not sure why it has come up again, uh, but basically uh, this idea of using why using methanol in your hand sanitizers is a bad idea. Right. Right. And I will. And this is again. This is an interview that I did. 
uh, via email because the reporter is um, in in Europe and and didn't want to I didn't want to have a conversation with them um, in uh, at three in the morning um, so I sent an email the the reporter very nicely said oh, just send me an email answers to my questions um, and uh, and I said I'm happy to do that and he said he sent me a thank you at three o'clock uh, in the morning um, so. Uh, so well, let let me let me ask you these questions, and then and then I'll give you my answers. How does that sound? Okay, go yeah, go. Okay, ahead. Uh, one. How serious is the health risk that hand sanitizer gels containing methanol pose? Oh, I'm, uh, so it, I mean, it kind of depends on how much there you're exposed to in the concentration, but I would say it can be serious. Right. And my, yeah, exactly. And my answer was, I think the health risk is serious enough that the product is being recalled. Right. No, but, but that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> so I always, if I don't know the answer, I always put it back onto, onto a regulatory agency statement. Um, but, um, so, and it's remarkably hard to find information. And, and so, uh, and actually had Doug had reached out to me, uh, when this story first broke and I wrote a, a, a barf blog, uh, blog post. And then I said, well, you know, I, I think I've learned a little bit more since then. And I, I should really expand on it. And of course I never did. I dug a little bit deeper in response to this reporter's question, and I found a study from 1931, a toxicology study, okay? And from that study, uh, where, where basically what they did was they, they it's, it's really, I'm glad I'm not a toxicologist, they basically took uh, cloth and they soaked it with methanol and then they taped it onto the bodies of animals and, and studied what happened to them, um, which is, I guess, how you'd have to do this. Um, but basically extrapolating from that study, I would say you'd need to be sanitizing your hands um, 30 times a day um, to, to ingest enough methanol in that way, um, to cause harm. Um, but then, and I did link to this article, um, in, in the original barf blog post, um, there's an, a case report from a guy in Saudi Arabia who cleaned out a methanol tank and he was wearing a breathing apparatus. So he wasn't inhaling any, any methanol, but his clothing ended up soaked with methanol from, from, from cleaning this, this tank out. And then he proceeded to walk around on the deck of this tanker, um, to let his clothes just sort of naturally air out. And it took a couple of hours and he got methanol poisoning from that. Right. And so the, the solution, they noticed it fortunately. And so they gave, um, the appropriate prophylaxis for methanol poisoning, which is to give the person lots of ethanol, <laughs> alcohol to drink uh, because right. the, because the alcohol uh, apparently does something with displacing the methanol um, in some way and 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 it helps helps you metabolize it and the person survived um, but yeah but that's that's you know that's that's the sort of the toxicology of it but I was really kind of interested that I had to go all the way back to 1931 um, to kind of get an answer to that um so the, the second question the reporter asks is, how do people get poisoned through the use of these gels? Um, and 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 I think the answer here, well, 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 do you want to answer that? Well, I, I think they get poisoned through the use of this this gels as it uh, moves through their hands into their bloodstream. Well, but see, here's the thing: most people get poisoned by drinking it. Oh, that's right. 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 Yes. And and then again, FDA has a really nice statement on their web page uh, saying, although people using these products on their hands are at risk for methanol poisoning, young children who ingest these products and adolescents and adults who drink these products as an alcohol ethanol substitute are most at risk. Right. 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 Yeah. And so there, there has been some other like uh, as an aside to this. 
Um, someone sent us a message on Twitter or texted us something about um, uh, hand sanitizer being sold in water bottles or um, bottles that look like drinking vessels. Mm-hmm. And, for, and so, you know, you've got this clear liquid in something that looks like a water bottle that has a, you know, a really nice label on it and that could be um, mistaken for water. And so I, I could see where you could have some mistaken consumption of this methanol containing uh, hand sanitizer as well. Oh, right. Yeah, for sure. That, that would, and that would be a, that would be a bad thing. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do that. Don't um, do that. Yep. Um, and then, uh, so third question, um, what symptoms can such poisoning cause? Can it prove to be fatal? Um, and it's <laughs> definitely can be fatal. That's why we're recalling these products. Right. Um, and I would, I wrote that the symptoms are similar to those from ethanol intoxication, uh, but some are much worse, uh, nausea, vomiting, headache, blurred vision, permanent blindness, seizures, coma, permanent damage to the nervous system or death. It's not good. No, not good. And then the last question, do the quantities of methanol found in single small bottles of the products that have been recalled have the potential to produce severe adverse effects? And so, yeah, I mean, I think the answer is depending on the size of the bottle or how many you have. Uh, If they're ingested, they definitely can. Um, Again, going back to the, the toxicology study. It looks like all it really takes is a couple of ounces, um, you know, which would be enough to produce intoxication if that was your goal. But it's all would be also enough to to cause those more adverse uh, consequences. So and again, it's it's harder to ingest that much um, alcohol via your skin, um, but it's definitely within the possibility if you're sanitizing your hands a lot. So, yeah. So anyway, and, and the reason why this was in the news again is that for some reason, FDA sort of re-upped their news release. And so they had an original uh, press release some time ago whenever my barf blog post came out uh, but they recently uh, re-upped it um, FDA reiterates warning about dangerous alcohol-based hand sanitizer and that was in uh, on July 27 uh, 2020 so just just in the last week or so huh um yeah and and I guess you know this isn't another another situation um, you know most of the time we've talked about our um, we, we've got friends who are at gojo you've done some work with them we're about to do some work with uh, with them we know we, we have lots of friends at ecolab um, at uh, at other uh, companies um, like diversity who make uh, sanitizers and, and and chemicals all of a sudden when you have a shortage you got all these other players that are getting into it right we've got a there's a need for sanitizers um, and the folks that do it day in day out are are not you know they're not able to to keep the production uh, up to meet that demand and then all of a sudden the market gets flooded with just you know and normal everyday people that are using methanol instead of <laughs> instead of um, ethanol in their hand right. sanitizer yeah and now there's another fallout right like there's it's yeah I, I look forward to the to the ripple effects of coronavirus in the food industry book. <laughs> <laughs> That someone that someone someday will write uh, about this, but this is yeah, it's it's you know who who would have thought that that we would have had this conversation um, you know six months ago yeah yeah um, hey so I got a couple of you know always be promoting right mm-hmm. the, those are the things that that I do I, I want to promote a paper that I that I had published okay go um, for it. 
Yeah. So, um, I, uh, go, uh, one, one thing that we have talked about on the podcast that, uh, I do, I spent a lot of time doing in a somewhat creepy, but maybe not creepy, too creepy way is watching people cook and make food. And I say, I, it's not really me so much. Uh, my, my team of folks, uh, we, we do this and, uh, we published our first paper from a really big, um, set of experiments looking at how people handle uh, food that is uh, funded by USDA uh, Food Safety Inspection Service, which is a different funding agency than most of our food safety folks usually. Well, it's the same agency, but it's a different group within mm -hmm. USDA. Um, and uh, so our, I've got uh, two um, uh, colleagues there that we've worked with on this on this project, Chris Bernstein and Aaron Lavely. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say... <laughs> What were you going to say? <laughs> uh, Luchansky and Adam Fortafet. No, no, it's not. Different, different USDA. Different, different USDA. Yeah, they're not in this project. Um, and so this, uh, we're, we also work with RTI International. So uh, co all other co-authors on this. Um, on this. Wait, uh, that would be RTII. <laughs> well, it's RTI Research Triangle Institute. Oh, International. International. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Sherry Cates, uh, and, uh, former student of mine, uh, but now on, on her own doing an awesome job at, at RTI, Ellen Thomas, uh, Shoemaker. And so we, uh, th this is the first paper from a, a, a series of probably 30 papers over the next eight or so years. Whoa. Uh, yeah, ba based on projects that, that we've done, um, doing observation of food handlers combined with microbiology. And so you've been involved mm -hmm. in a couple of manuscripts all, um, uh, as well that, that are currently in clearance uh, at USDA, um, looking at hand washing and impacts of moving pathogens around um, a, a kitchen. And that was actually done during this this study as well. But the first paper that we had from this was published um, earlier this month. Well, I guess er like last early, late last early last month in July, um, early, late last month, <laughs> early, late not last month. If you're not first, you're last. If you ain't first, you're last on um, an observational study of thermometer use by consumers when preparing ground turkey patties. And so lead author on this is uh, Min Duong. Min uh, did his master's in, in my group and is now uh, um, very, you know, uh, completing a Ph.D. with with a friend of the podcast and our friend Renee Boyer at uh, Virginia Tech. Um, and, and essentially the the paper what we did is we brought um, uh, a bunch of people into uh, model kitchens, um, just 383 over the course of um, a few months, and we asked them to prepare turkey patties. And we wanted to know whether they used a thermometer. Uh, and they, they prepared turkey patties. They also prepared um, some um, uh, a salad. And... Uh, they knew that they were being watched. They didn't know exactly what they're being watched for. It is a deception study, and we've talked about this um, in, in, in previous episodes. Um, and um, what half of our uh, our study were uh, an intervention group, and half were a control. Control didn't see anything. They were just asked to come in and prepare food like they normally would at home. Uh, the other half of the uh, of the um, sample were given an iPad and they watched a two and a half minute video on using a thermometer. And we wanted to know whether if you watched a two and a half minute video of using a thermometer, you actually used a thermometer uh, and how you used it and where you placed it in, in the turkey patty. Um, and so the, the quick answer is if you show people a video right before they cook, 
they will use a thermometer at a rate of two times greater than someone who didn't see the video. Wait, what um, did the control group get to do? N- nothing. They, they, they just walked into a, an, into a kitchen. They were given um, raw ground turkey. Um, they were provided with a recipe and asked to prepare a meal. I but think we you should have shown them a funny YouTube video. Oh, we should have done that. Because, yes. Ben, it might have been just simply the act of using the iPad made them smarter. <laughs> oh, that is entirely possible. Good thing um, I didn't review your manuscript. Right, right. You would have, you would have highlighted that. Um, yeah. So they, they, they did not uh, – they didn't get any, any sort of intervention at all. Um, oh, but what was – and this is not um, – it highlighted in this manuscript, it's in another manuscript, but we also incorporated um, a bacteriophage, uh, MS2, into the ground turkey, and we looked at cross-contamination within the kitchen. Um, but anyway, what this one was all about was if we if we give people a video, in uh, an existing video, this is a video that USDA has used as part of the foodsafety.gov um, uh, promotion of food safety. It's uh, something that came from the their partnership with the Partnership of Food Safety um, Education, um, Partnership for Food Safety. I think that's what it's called. Yep. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so watch so so here like it sounds a little bit. I don't know. It's not, it's not silly. We need to do this work. We need to find out if, if we actually got this information to somebody right when they're making a decision is that, does this vehicle work, right? Just showing someone a video at this time work. The, the harder part is how do we get them a video at that time? Right. Right. Well, or, or how do you get them? How do you change behavior long term so that right. that people are just, you know, through public service announcements or whatever, such that they're just doing this normally. And actually, I'm really intrigued that uh, the control group, um, 34% of the control group use a thermometer and 23% of the control group actually put it in the correct place. So yeah, that's actually kind of not as bad as I thought, right? Well, and, and here's, here's the thing. One, why, one of the reasons why we picked ground turkey is that there wasn't any, we had no observational research or really much in research at all on how consumers handle ground turkey, right? So a lot of our thermometer use information, especially around ground patties or ground, ground meat patties has been around, you know, hamburgers has been around beef. And one of the things that we, that's also not in this paper, but is in some, some work that were, um, that were actually to present, uh, at the IAFP October online um, meeting, uh, or not online, or wherever it is, um, is that uh, how people view different foods impacts whether they're using a thermometer or not. Because we interviewed individuals afterwards and asked them questions about, okay, and it essentially goes like this. We saw that you used a thermometer when you did this, right? So we've got people watching on, on video. We want to really trigger, have them sort of report back to us what their thought process was. And we heard... Um, you know, that, well, I wouldn't normally do this with a beef hamburger cause I'm not worried about those, but Turkey chicken, I worry about salmonella. So I am going to use a thermometer with this. Whoa. And so, yeah, so, so it's really like, you know, I, I, I get really excited about this kind of work because a lot of the decisions that we make in, in, um, you know, in, in risk assessment all the way through to communication is based on our assumption that how people view a specific food is is the way that they view all foods, and and what we're finding in our research is that's certainly not the case. So so we 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 actually have to think about 
how will we, it's not just saying things like you should always use a food thermometer when you're cooking. It's, oh, we really need to target people that are worried about certain foods or less worried about other foods and try to change those behaviors in a much more, um, uh, targeted way, right? Like in, in a, in a much more specific way to what they're, um, how they're, how they're approaching things. So, yeah, well, so, so yeah, it's interesting because with, so number one, you have to get them to use a thermometer. Number two, you have to get them to use a thermometer correctly, but number three, and really it's number zero is you have to understand, or you have to, to explain to them why it's important to use a thermometer in any ground meat product, right? Like it's, like it's not, it's not just about poultry because of salmonella. It could be because of E. coli in ground beef, right? And that's, and if they don't even know that they need to use a thermometer because they're not worried about, about that food product, well, that's then, then, you know, it doesn't matter if they um, have a thermometer or can use a thermometer, right? Right, right. Absolutely. Um, One, one thing I think for me, of course, being the like, I don't know, behavioral nerd here, um, there's a table, uh, in here, table four. And again, we'll link to the, to the actual JFP article. Mm-hmm. If you, um, can get by the paywall. Well, I don't know. This one it's, actually it doesn't be, look like it's behind a paywall. Yeah. Yeah. I think this one's open access cause it's, uh, a, USDA. It's yeah. yeah. Um, so table four, um, when we asked people, do you, how do you assess, like assess whether, um, your ground Turkey patties are done? Right. So we asked them, do you use color? Do you use touch? Do you use more than one method? And what what both in what we saw and self-reported and what we observed is very, very few people only use one determination. Right. So we're making our decisions on doneness based on a variety of of cues. Mm -hmm. Thermometer is, is one of them. And in fact, in our observed, we saw a much higher amount of people both in the treatment and the control um, using only a thermometer if they were to use a thermometer um, compared to, to what they reported self self-reported. Um, but it, it's be, because doneness and this is like our challenge in food safety, right? Doneness to me and you might mean doneness for safety. And if we ask people about doneness for safety, they may not be able to parse that out because they're looking at doneness for quality, for palate, for taste, for texture, all of the other things and for safety. So they're using color. They're using texture. They're put they're, uh, for, you know, looking at the firmness of it because I don't want to eat a two, you know, a, a burger that's too squishy, you know, a turkey burger that's too squishy or or a turkey burger that's too um, brittle or or too tough. Mm-hmm. I, I want that that perfect like amount, and I want to know that it's that it's safe. So these, even, you know, I, I think our messages of well, the only way to safely know that a t- that a, a burger is is done or a, meat, a food is done is to use a thermometer. We really have to recognize that we're combating uh, a situation where people are actually using multiple cues and not to chastise them for that, but to say, oh, use these multiple cues. But the one that is going to keep you from getting sick is this one. Right. Um, not to, and, and I think there's a nuance in the communication because I think we have really swung the pendulum to only use a thermometer. And what, what our study is showing is, well, it's, you know, if we want to, that, that's, that's going to be a very hard behavior to change. Why don't we just recognize that there are other cues and we need to, to address them in consort with each other? 
Yeah, well, st- stop telling people to not use color because if, if color is important to you for quality reasons, then use that. But yeah, I mean, I think the message is here's the, tr- the, here's the best one, the only one really for safety, right, is a thermometer. Right, right, e- exactly. Um, so, so anyway, that's yeah, this, it's one of those exciting um, papers that we, I haven't really talked about anywhere um, because it's the, it's the first one of like you know, five years worth of work. We're, we're just about to start year four um, this fall. And so we've got, you know, it's one of these now, now we're in the, in the manuscript machine churning of going back a couple of years and making sure that we're, we've cleaned up all the data that we have in hand so we can get that out. And then we're, we're now like, you know, onto year two and year three materials and, and trying to get those out the door. So, so yeah, like we've got this big board of, of papers and I think it's somewhere in between 30 and 50 that we'll write over the course of this project. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So cool. So there, there you go. Always be promoting. Excellent. Um, what else, what else is going on with you? What do you, what, 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 oh, you know, what we haven't talked about is, uh, is jam. Jams. Yeah. We should, we should definitely talk about jams so we don't forget. Jam gate. Okay. So, so here's, let me, let me find, I've, I've got a link up somewhere here. There is a company called squirrel. <laughs> do you know about squirrel? Don? Uh, is it Did spelled you know? in a funny way without all the letters? It is, it is, it, 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 and I, maybe I'm, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, it looks like squirrel to me. It's S Q I R L. Um, and so that's S as in, um, uh, you know, strawberry mm-hmm. Q as in, um, quills and then IRL as in, in real, in life. real life. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, so Ben, I don't know if you know this, but squirrel is a hip cafe, which features global inspired breakfast and lunch fare with homemade jams in a minimalist space. They, minimalist. S- they spelled minimalist with too many letters. <laughs> Did you know that you can get a, you can, uh, get to a, um, or you can, um, subscribe to a bi-monthly jam club. I did not get, know that. You get some squirrel, squirrel jam. You get six. You can do a couple things. Um, you can do a one year six six shipments of two jams every other month, which is a total of twelve jams, or um, four month two shipments of two jams every other month, total of four jams. There's a lot of jam. I don't eat a lot of jam. I love jam. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I you know in in my in my current. Um, uh, uh, keto Atkins, mm-hmm. uh, 20, you know, uh, 7-Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> I, all, all of those things. I don't, uh, I, I'm not eating a lot of, a lot of sugar things as much as uh-huh. I can. Yeah. I, and, and, and I don't, the things that I like to eat jam on are, uh, full of uh, uh, wheat and, yep. and, and, and I don't eat a lot of those anymore. Yep. So, so this is, I would love to join a, a jam club. I just, uh, I'm just, I'm not going to. Got it. But, but I don't know if I would join the Squirrel Jam Club. Uh, You're saying and, it's not your jam. <laughs> it's not my jam. It's not my jam, man. Um, so this, the, the Twitter went kind of crazy um, uh, about um, uh, three weeks ago uh, about a whole bunch of pictures that were shared on Reddit of buckets, uh, five gallon oh, buckets yes, yes. of jam. And so I think the best article on this. Um, well, there, there's two and I won't, I don't know if you have, uh, and I'll, I may have to find this, this link. There is a fantastic Twitter thread, um, by, um, an individual who was a, I think a master, uh, ma- master preserver mm-hmm. or master food yep. gardener at Cornell, um, which hopefully we can find, but also there's a great article in Eater Los Angeles and, okay. um, the, so the, we'll start with Eater Los Angeles and then we'll get into the, um, into the Twitter, um, uh, thread when I can find it. So, um, 
this uh, the article is entitled "A Moldy Bucket of Squirrel Jam Is Making the Internet Lose Its Mind." Um, and so, nationally known Virgil Village restaurant squirrel came under fire over the weekend after allegations of questionable food handling practices and mistreated employees found their way to social media. Uh, owner Jessica Kozel spent at least a portion of her weekend defending her mega popular daytime spot, known for its toast jams. Uh, Sorel pesto rice bowls and long lines, even during the pandemic, from online allegations that the company's oh, well-known jams. God, I just looked at this picture. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, Don't, so good, if you right? if you're if you're grossed out by mold, do not scroll down. Yeah, it scroll scroll down. No, Look no thanks. I'm gonna lose my uh, breakfast here. Uh, nope. an, an employee from Squirrel shared this photo of the moldy jam from their kitchen. The fact that we were told just to scrape the mold off, and this mm-hmm. is there's a lot of mold um, on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wouldn't know, a, but yes, yes, yeah. Um, so so they they do have um, you know th- there was a response on. Uh, Squirrel social channels included a portion of the jam storage areas seen below, which there's a lot of jam and lots of plastic buckets. And then it, I think this is from an Instagram story uh, or an Instagram. It says, we don't use commercial pectin, sweeteners, or other stabilizers. To, and to highlight the fruit, we use little added sugar that yields a more natural fruit-forward product. Fruit-forward, Don. Fruit-forward. Um, yeah, we use about half the sugar you'd find in typical supermarket jam. And put simply, a low-sugar jam is more susceptible to the growth of mold. The same types of mold that develop on some cheese, charcuterie, dry-aged beef, and lots of other preserved um, foods. No, well, degree to disagree. <laughs> yeah, mold, mold, it's, it's still, it's, I, I mean, here's the part that's true. It's all called mold. That's true. They are molds, yeah. and, and yeah. molds are, are found um, on things, yes. Sometimes with cheeses and charcuterie, I am I'm actively adding the mold culture or mold spore culture so I can use that mold to to create the flavor. In jams, I'm not not really doing that. This is true. Um so um, the statement reads further, all jam production for jarred retail and restaurant is 100% done offsite at our catering kitchen, a California Department of Food and Ag and Milk, food, a- a- food and Ag Milk and Dairy Food Safety Certified Facility. In the past, jam was made at, on-site at Squirrel, always legally and always labeled accordingly. With bulk jam, the product is poured into containers hot, and this is the fun part, cooled completely, and then stored in the walk-in. With this bulk jam, over time, mold would sometimes develop on the surface that we handled with the guidance of our preservation mentors and, and experts like Dr. Patrick Halicki. By discarding mold and, and several inches be, below the mold or by discarding containers altogether. Do you know, do you know Dr. Patrick Halicki? I don't know Dr. Patrick Halicki. Um, so I also don't know Dr. Patrick Halicki and I Googled him. And I could not find him. Huh. So I don't know who that is. There is a Dr. Patrick Thomas Hickey, which is a different person who is, I think, at WebMD. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know who, the, um, who, who uh, Patrick Halicki is. Um, and so maybe he's a mold. He's a mold guy. I, I don't know. Um, oh, maybe. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Don, here we go. Okay. This is real time follow up. I'm doing investigative journalism here on the back <laughs> well. of on the back of investigative journalists. Um uh L, after LA Squirrel, this is uh, something uh from Hem- oh. Emily Heil. Yep. 
After yeah. LA Squirrel Cafe sold its moldy jam, its owner cited a mycologist, not Dr. Patrick Halicki, but Dr. Patrick Hickey, a mycologist, to defend it. But he doesn't approve. There you go. Um, so so there, that's why I couldn't find him. Um, Oh, yeah, and we do. I do want to say, I, in in preparation for this episode, I did save. So one of us saved something uh, in Dropbox, um, and it was from a friend of the show, um, uh, Doctor Clarified Indian Butter, um, who sent us actually a link to the Emily Heil uh, Wapo uh, story. So so thanks, uh, Doc uh, Doc Clarified Indian Butter. Doctor Clarified Indian <laughs> Indian Butter at it again. So reached by phone in Edinburgh, Scotland. Hickey, a mycologist who studies the structure of mold growth, seemed perplexed that Coslow would drop his name. He does not recall ever, met, ever having met or spoken to her, he said. He did give an interview in 2014 to the BBC in which he suggested that some moldy items found in people's home refrigerators, including jam, would probably be safe to eat with the mold removed. But a commercial operation is far different, he noted in an interview. Yep, <laughs> yep, yep, yep. Uh, so maybe, maybe they were talking about Dr. Uh, Patrick Halicki. Not Dr. Patrick Hickey, uh, mycologist, but Dr. Patrick Halicki, uh, noted gemologist. Uh, so, uh, so I mean, here's here's the situation uh, for for me. We we've mm-hmm. got a retail food setting. Um, one of the things in the in the food code, and, and again, California uses a different version of the food code than we use here in North Carolina than you use in in, uh, in New Jersey. But let's just go with the the most updated version, uh, the 2017 code, just for for you know consistency. What we're trying to do in all parts of that code is protect protect food from contamination, including spoilage, including molds. And yes. Um, in certain food situations, mold can be scraped off uh, the top from a from a low risk standpoint in my home. Right. But I but I don't have the same expectation that a restaurant is scraping mold off of food and serving it, no matter how fruit forward they are. Yes. Um, and 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 so this. Uh, yeah, I, we, we get involved in, in jams and, and preserves and canning things uh, because of uh, because of the food code and, and in certain cases needing variances to the food code to, to do this. But this this one's kind of like to me, it's it, it reading the the initial re, uh, eater article, which is what I read um, for preparation and didn't find the WAPO article. Um it, uh, it it doesn't give me confidence in the operator. It doesn't tell me that the person who's making my food really gets what the regs are, why they're there, why I, why as a consumer I, I need to be protected from spoilage and contamination. It's, it's really no different than arguing, well, you know, we, we let our bread hang out here for a while and bread has mold associated with it and just the same, you know, same mold that, that you can get for charcuterie and, and from cheese. And we just cut the mold off of the bread and serve it to you um, it just because, right? Like it's it's OK. It's what people do. It doesn't – I don't know. It, it doesn't – that's not the kind of place that I want to eat at. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I would. I would agree. I would agree. Um, so I don't know if you, did you have a chance to find the Twitter thread? I did not. Um, I, I, looks like I didn't save it. Um, so I, I don't, I did not find it. I, uh, I didn't find it either. Maybe we'll find it. Um, oh no, I did find it. I bookmarked it. Oh, good. I got it. I got it. Um, 
copy link to tweet post to here here you go um uh, this is from uh, Twitter uh, Twitter person uh, uh, Strawberry Beefcake um, at underscore terrorism underscore. Hi, Master Food Preserver here. Serious, I have all the pretty papers from Cornell and California. And while looking over the claims being made about a certain California jam company, a few points need to be made about hot oven pack, low sugar jams, and mold. Um, and so um, the Strawberry Beefcake goes through just a really nice threaded – gosh, there's probably – uh, 15 threads that I'm not going to read through, but we will link in the show notes, but really highlighting um, USDA frowning upon the method of hot oven packing for sealing, um, uh, uh, talking about home food preservations, um, you know, low sugar uh, uh, jams and how that uh, can can lead to more mold. Um, and, and yeah, so it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good Twitter, th- uh, good, good Twitter read. Yeah. So information. So two, yeah, and we we'll link to it in show notes. So so two two uh, two additional points. Um, their Twitter name is underscore terrorism. Oh, I'm sorry, not, not terrorism, terrorism, which is a little bit of a play on um, um, whatever terroir is. I think it's a fancy food thing. Um, <laughs> oh, well, I was. I'm. I'm sorry. I'm. Yeah. That's and, and then the other other thing I want to uh, to call out is an article that I I think about any time I think about mold. Um, and it, and it's actually from 1967. Um, and and uh, it's by uh, Lee and Marth, uh, entitled "Formation of Aflatoxin in Cheddar Cheese by Aspergillus flavus and Aspergillus parasiticus." And basically, what they did was they took cheddar cheese they inoculated with toxigenic strains of aspergillus and then they they held them at room temperature and then they got mold formation on the top and then they looked they sliced through the cheese to basically figure out well okay how deep did the aflatoxin penetrate um and this is where we get recommendations we get the recommendation that it's okay to slice you know cheese of of a certain uh you know thickness so no aflatoxin was detected in cheese more than 1.3 centimeters from the surface and so if you have moldy cheese with toxins uh, in in the in the mold and in the cheese you can slice off um, 1.3 centimeters or more and you can be assured that you're not getting any aflatoxin now that was with cheese not with jam, right? To, 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 you'd have to repeat the study with jam. And I'm sure that this low pectin, no pectin jam um, is maybe less solid. And that's going to give you maybe more penetration of aflatoxin. So if you did want to come up with a recommendation for how much uh, of mold to scoop off or how, how much jam to throw away, um, you need some research like this. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Good. This is good. Good one. No, we're going back into, uh, into the history of mold. <laughs> aflatoxins um what else what else we got going on there's some other feedback in here let's do it okay so um so we've got let me uh let's let's start with oh so just a little bit of real-time follow-up terroir terroir is the complete natural environment in which a particular wine is produced including factors such as soil topography and climate so I was right about that. So that, that so that Twitter user's name is a play on that term. Huh. All right. Um, all right. So uh, this comes from 
um, uh, for listener of the show, a uh, friend of the show, um, who I think we've given a name to before, but we'll go with deep, um, sauerkraut. Mm. Um, and, uh, this is, uh, uh, one, one of our friends from the international association for food protection, uh, messages, all the rage now is fermented foods. Is it safe to make your own sauerkraut? I hear you leave it for weeks in the jar. Is there anything on the podcast regarding this? Um, and so, uh, yeah, so you, you answer this, uh, but what, why don't you, yeah, yeah. So, so it turns out the answer is no, we have not, uh, we've talked about fermented foods, but we have not specifically talked about sauerkraut. And so my, in my response to the listener, um, my, I said, basically sauerkraut is pretty bulletproof, um, as a fermented food, as long as you get the salt content right at the beginning, if you don't get the salt content right, then you can have an uncontrolled fermentation and it could be trouble. Um, I did a, a little with a little bit of advanced um, advanced uh, Google foo, uh, basically searching for the word sauerkraut in any domain that ended with edu. <laughs> I found um, a couple of different articles. Um, we will uh, link to at least one of them, uh, which is the, and we'll link to the, the first one, which was the uh, top hit, which was from our good friend Elizabeth Andres at the National Center for Home Food Preservation, and uh, she has a recipe for uh, preparing sauerkraut. And basically, it's twenty five pounds of cabbage and three quarters of a cup of canning or pickling salt, and it makes about nine quarts of sauerkraut so it's pretty easy to make um, and then she has a recipe for uh, or she, she has directions for how to hot pack or or raw pack that um yeah so uh there you go right and uh you know a, a couple of things on this um one th this is the recipe that i that i share quite often sauerkraut's not my thing it's mm. not something that i really really like i like fermented foods like kimchi is more my thing um another you know fermented uh cabbage product uh but um, this is, I, I think, one that we teach a lot of home food preservation um, here um, in, in my state around sauerkraut because it's, it's a somewhat easy fermentation that doesn't really doesn't go wrong very, um, very, very much. But a really interesting. So so here's the um, here's how you make it. So you uh, take the outer leaves off of the cabbage, you rinse them under cold water, cut them into quarters, shred or slice them, uh, and then you put them into some sort of a fermentation container. Um, often it's a crock, um, so like a stone, a stone pot. Um, you add tables, three tablespoons of salt, mix thoroughly, pack firmly, um, and uh, then you uh, fill it up with, uh, you know, repeat the shredding and salting, um, be sure it's deep enough so the rim's at least four or five inches uh, above the cabbage. Uh, and then uh, you uh, make sure that there's uh, you, you put a boiled and cooled brine over top of it if you haven't covered like if, if there's cabbage sticking up um, from the you know from the water or the juice that's that's there. And then you let it sit. Um, and you let it sit at temperatures between 70 and 75 degrees uh, for three to four weeks. Uh, if it's cooler than that, 60 to 65, it might take five to six weeks. Uh, and then it, it bubbles and ferments, and, uh, and, and that's, that's all you do. This process is something that, um, that we've seen in, in restaurants as well. And, and what is like – I guess um, regulatory problematic about it is you're taking cabbage, you're shredding it, so you're cutting a leafy green, and you're leaving it at room temperature 
for longer than four hours because you need to, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, ferment it for at least three to four weeks. Um, and so it, it requires a HACCP plan and a, and a variance to the to the food code. Um, doing that in your own home, you don't need to do that. Um, but it, you know, that's that's kind of the kind of the process. Um, and and so for people that make a lot of sauerkraut, I've recommended um, a pH meter uh, for for that grinding up the um, the sauerkraut at different uh, points in the fermentation to make sure that the pH has dropped uh, below four, which is what gives you the the real tangy um, taste of, of sauerkraut if you like if you like sauerkraut. Um, but but this is it's such like this is one of those things where. Um, if you look at it in all the definitions of things that could grow bacteria, yeah, the, you know, if there was contamination there, it, it can grow. Um, but the pH drop is is going to really, um, you know, stunt the growth and and kill off uh, some of the, that population of certain pathogens. One that I that I always highlight when talking about sauerkraut is E. coli 157H7, which has uh, some level of acid tolerance and. I, I've looked, uh, you know, it's something that I keep my eyes open for. Um, I've not seen a an outbreak of 0157H7 linked to sauerkraut. And so there, there might be some other reasons why um, that pathogen, uh, you know, in particular just, just hasn't led to, to outbreaks because, you know, in, in, this, in this type of food. But – it's a it's a, a very old process um, and one that we we really haven't seen um, uh, a lot of illnesses associated with, if any. So, yeah. And so here I'm just looking at a 2005 article um, uh, out of Jim Dixon's lab, uh, survival of Listeria monocytogenes and E. coli 157H7 during sauerkraut fermentation. And let me see if I can find uh, the final pH was lower if it was whole head versus shredded. Titratable acidities were different. Uh, acid tolerant E. coli and listeria were isolated from both shredded and whole head at different salt concentrations and temperatures after 15 days and could be detected at 35 days in the whole head sauerkraut. So it looks like it does uh, perhaps die off uh, slowly. Um, so let's see. Oh, no, I, I misspoke. It's well. Oh, Jim Jim Dixon is the is the lead author. So, you know, let's. I'm just looking at the actual paper. Yeah. So pH pH um, acidity acidity. Yeah. Log CFU. So at 18 degrees C, it looks like after about yeah 25 days. Um, I don't know if that's detected or or not. But yeah, so I, I wish people would be more consistent in how they report this stuff. But yeah, so basically, if you hold it long enough, um, the the E. coli goes down, right? So I mean, that's that's the bo- that's the bottom line. Is uh, yeah, you, you you the E. coli does die off slowly. Again, it's back to our discussions earlier about salmonella survival, right? And it's the same with E. coli. E. coli will die slowly in these products, and so you if you hold it for long enough, um, you know, and they they really they loaded this up with ten to the eighth. Uh, e. coli, which is unlikely to be in your cabbage um, to begin with, so yeah, I, this is a this is relatively safe, I would say. Yeah, and and so that's if you're going to eat it, so um, f- essentially fresh without any process. What um, Elizabeth has uh, at the National Center for Home Food Preservation is is processing time. So after right. you fermented your your sauerkraut um, into to deep sauerkraut's question, you put it into a jar, you process it, and and Elizabeth has. 
um, both hot pack and raw pack uh, processing time. So for raw pack, um, in a in a quart jar, for instance, uh, at at um, uh, sea level, so a thousand feet where I am, it's a 25 minute process in a boiling water bath, which would take care of those vegetative cells. And this is where that um, that that full fermentation really matters. Having the pH drop. Um, you know, you're, you're essentially fermenting this food, taking this cabbage, which um, would have a pH above 4.6, probably probably in the like six range, mm-hmm. um, and you put it in this jar um, with in an anaerobic environment. If you if you are not getting that full fermentation and the pH drop below uh, maybe 4.2 would would be, or I, I guess 4.6 is where 4.2 is what the food code kind of looks at, and 4.6 is where much of um, the work uh, that uh, FDA looks at in um, in acidified foods uh, it fo- you know, focuses on. Um, but if you're not getting that and then you put it in this jar in this anaerobic environment and you heat it up, there there are uh, potentials for um, botulism issues. But, but again, this is one where I think you're not – if you don't – if you're not making sauerkraut, like if it's um, – after four to six weeks of fermentation, if something's gone wrong in that fermentation, you've got a whole bunch of spoilage that's happening. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, just to yeah. look at the Dixon article, uh, basically the pH uh, for, for their products, they start about 6.25 or so. And then I would say within about a week, you are under that uh, 4.2, right? So so yeah, if you're if you if you fermented this thing for weeks and you're not below that pH needed to make it safe for canning, um, you've got a whole host of other problems. Right. And and the other thing I'll point out, too, is that um, I was looking for recommendations for for storage for the product. Um, but I think basically after it's done, yeah, either you're going to make it with the intent to can it or you're going to freeze it. And it looks like on the one uh, there's a University of Minnesota Web page, um, which basically has the same canning directions or it says uh, freeze for eight to 12 months. And so and then again, all of these recipes are for using a massive amount of cabbage. So this is not something that you make a little bit of or it's probably not something you make a little bit of. You're making it with the intention to can it or to uh, or to freeze it, um, because you're you're you know you're making pounds of the stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, I, absolutely, and and it's something you know to reiterate something I said earlier. It's something that's been around for such a long time. Like historically, we've just not seen. Um, we've not seen illnesses with it. Yeah, no, yeah, and because, like yeah. like I like I said in the message, um, you know, bulletproof. Basically, this is this is a this is a very reliable fermentation. It's well characterized. There, there's studies that show the ecological succession. You first you get this organism, then you get that organism, and so yeah, very very reliable. Awesome, cool. Um, all right, so we got another um, another piece of feedback, and I think like if we do this one, I think we're all caught up on feedback, right? Well, we're all uh, caught on on feedback that we've decided that we're going to take as yeah. feedback. I have a whole folder uh, on my computer here. I have um, oh, I don't know how many messages here. Twenty two messages, Ben. That I have I during the pandemic. I've I've sort of modified my email system, and so during the pandemic, I was getting a lot of uh, feedback, food safety talk feedback, um, and I was just throwing it into a folder on my computer. Um, so we I've got a lot more wow. <laughs> that, that's sort of been quarantined during the pandemic. If you if you ever want to talk about any of it, and and I've been I've been saving stuff for risky or not and food safety talk in separate folders. Well, we'll get we'll get to those okay. feedback, but but for today's feedback for today's feedback, back. yes, we'll yeah. catch up for today. 
Yes. So this is from uh, Deep Chemicals, a uh, uh, frequent frequent writer. Well, you know, er, earlier writer, uh, frequent listener. Um, I've written in before. I've had my question answered. I still love the program, of course. Uh, and I'm finishing up uh, Risky or Not backlog as well. So you know, always be promoting. We have this other podcast called Risky or Not, um, which is at riskyornot.co, where we talk about things in a much shorter way, whether it's risky or not. Um, so the question is, I'm curious to hear you all talk about the mindset of someone who studies microorganisms and sickness the way you all do. I'm a music teacher, so I'm completely outside that works. But I'll say that in my own mindset has shifted tremendously with the pandemic. Whereas I used to think about surfaces and people as the causes of potential sickness, I now imagine actual microbial particles and think more about the virus or bacteria itself. I think it's a common reaction – or I think a common reaction to someone with a cold is – Oof, keep your distance, but not – which is great. Uh, but not total avoidance or social distancing. I'm trying to articulate that my mindset around illness has become much more focused on the little guys, the microbes, than on the idea of catching a cold or catching COVID-19 in the way one would catch the flu. It's gone from human perspective to more of a viral one. I'd say, quote, become infected with instead of catch but for COVID, but I'd never say that about a cold. I'm wondering if you two, who consider tiny, mostly invisible particles all day, still have that more articulated mindset of catching sickness, or if you've always viewed transmission as an infection. Also, I'm making myself crazy with the mindset, <laughs> imagining there are viral particles on every single thing that it comes into, into my house <laughs> Welcome or the to outside. my world. Yeah. Yes. So if you do view sickness and transmission that way, what do you do to keep yourselves from going down the particularly unsavory rabbit hole of anxiety? Um, and sorry for the rambling question. And no, this is a fantastic question. Um, I'm mostly curious to hear how you and your and and how much your scientific knowledge of all this stuff causes you to view the world differently from the way that I do. So um, yeah, so so deep chemicals. Um, so why don't why don't I take because you've you've answered this. Why don't I take this one first? Sure. Um, from from my perspective. Sure. So so I don't know when the switch in my mind moved to what deep chemical is talking about, but I certainly do view my entire world as as infection and contamination um you know potential but not in a way i guess the way that i don't so um i i think it probably came from my undergraduate degree world where i i really started studying um infection and uh, illness from a microbiological standpoint. Um, my, my degree was in um, molecular biology and genetics, but I was really interested in, um, in plants and plant breeding and the genetics that led to um, disease resistance. Like that's almost all of my electives were in that, in that area. And then I ended up moving to the food safety world based on, um, you know, finding this position with Doug Powell, who we've talked about on, on the podcast a lot, who became my professor for, um, uh, two degrees and, um, and, and I moved into the, into the food safety world. But I, I always, I know I, I've talked about this, uh, in the past, uh, as well, but I've, I've always been, um, interested in disease transmission and I, I I can root that to watching Outbreak in mm -hmm. uh, in 1995 when I was in high school uh, in taking a biology class and and just having a discussion in class about um, you know hemorrhagic diseases and and viruses and and I, I it, it's funny I I can't think of a time where I was. Um, 
where I look at it in a way that I that, that I, I I have an understanding that there are viruses and bacteria and molds and parasites everywhere, and I and and some of them make me sick, and some of them don't, and I can't do a lot about many of them, but I can do a little bit about some of them, and that part doesn't make me. Um, crazy. It doesn't make me, uh, focus on it. And, and, and I, you, you I'm, I'm going to steal some of your, your thunder. Um, I, I don't know exactly when I started thinking about probabilities as it relates to this, but it was probably sometime in that, um, in my undergraduate career where I, I, I get a, got a greater understanding of probabilities and, and statistics and exposure. Um, but, but the, I guess the short answer to deep chemicals question is, yeah, I, I do go through my life thinking about where are the microbes and what can I do to stop them? So I don't get sick and, and, and quote infected and not catch a cold. And so I think the same way around influenza, common cold, um, you know, norovirus and hepatitis A from the viral side, as well as all the, the bacterial contamination. Yeah, yeah, and I would say, you know, the whole, the whole idea of what you call it, I mean, we still use colloquialisms, right, like, and say catch a cold, um, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, you try to be, yeah, I try to be clear about what the, what the context is. Right. Um, and you know, sometimes I'll use germs as a, as a sort of a generic for all of these things. Cause it's easy to say rather than saying microorganisms. Um, but yeah, and I think it, again, I, I, the, part of, and I don't know when it exactly happened thinking about probabilities, but, but certainly our work on hand washing, um, for sure. And probably our predictive, predictive growth modeling um, before kind of trigger that and thinking about spore germinations and, and distribute variability and distributions of spore germination uh, certainly played a role in it. And, and, and again, it comes, it comes at part of it comes from the perspective of uh, cooperative extension and having to give yes or no answers about is something safe or is it not see also risky or not.co uh, our other podcast, right? Um, where we're, where we have to, we're not allowed to dither and we have to be definitive, but, but yeah, the world is complicated. And, and I, you know, an analogy that I keep using, cause I, it works for me and I think it's mostly works for other people is like, uh, think about it, lottery tickets, right? Where every, every cell, uh, every, every virus particle is like a lottery ticket. And if you, if you buy one lottery ticket, you probably won't win. But if you buy a million lottery tickets, you're, you're going to win. Right. And you'll, and you'll get, you'll contract, uh, illness. And so, and then it's about, you know, getting the organism from one place to another. And I do think about it. In fact, I can give you an example of where I thought about it this morning. I was taking the dog for a walk and we walked by the neighbor's house and they have a, a puppy um, that they put out on a run outside and the puppy is, is very sweet. And uh, I always like to go over and say hello to the puppy and petting the puppy. And then it occurred to me, well, what if the people in that house have <laughs> coronavirus and there's some on the dog? And then I was trying like really hard for the rest of the walk not to touch my face with the hand that I used to pet the dog. But I was still touching my dog's leash and touching with both hands. And so, you know, when I got back from the dog walk, as I always do, I sanitize my hands because at some point I picked up some dog poop, um, not with my not with my bare hands, but <laughs> just as a general a general practice. So I do think about these things, but it, but it's not it, I mean, I, there and there are people legitimately people who suffer from OCD who are really worried about it. And, and I, I just don't. Right. I mean, I'm I know hand washing, even hand washing is not a 
you know, it's not magic as uh, in contrast to the CDC video, uh, which claims that hand washing is magic, right? I mean, uh, washing your hands is good, but mostly when it comes to coronavirus, um, COVID-19, stay away from people, right? That's how you're going to get it. Um, yeah. So, so, but I do think about this all the time and I, and it gives me ideas for experiments to do in the laboratory. Uh, and yeah. And so, uh, it, it, it really, it's, and it's a, and it, a, but I think it's a, it's a healthy way of thinking about the world. As long as it doesn't make you obsessive or, or cause harm, I think it's a, it's a good way to think about things. Right. Yeah. Well, and one thing that, that you just talked about that I, I, I think we miss in the nuance sometime is the, the idea of probability and control. Those two things right. go hand in hand. Right. right? So, so what, what makes us, I guess if I if I only focus on the probabilities and I didn't think about how much control that I had and that there are steps that I could take to reduce those chances to to reduce the probabilities, then that would that could make me really paranoid and and anxious. Right. And and I think that that comes hand in hand with our technical background and, and expertise is is viewing both of those things. And I, you know, it goes what we talked about at the. Um, at the start with with onions and my, um, you know, so the r risk management in my pantry, right? So so maybe there's salmonella that comes in on this onion into that plastic bin that I use. What's the probability that it's going to transfer to other foods there? Very very low. Uh, how I handle those foods in that in that um, in that bucket are uh, I have control because I'm, I'm cooking them. There's a risk reduction step. And I have a very like simple step that if I'm if I'm really worried about it and, and if I'm like it's going to weigh on my mind, I can just clean and sanitize the, the bucket. Right. Like mm -hmm. and, and now, now I've moved on. Right. I'm, there's not much else I can worry about it, at this point, because if I if I've consumed a red onion that had the salmonella in it or on it, well, I've already consumed it. I can't do anything about that anymore. And so I think it, I think this. Uh, you know, I think our mindset is knowing a little bit about the probabilities, understanding that lottery ticket aspect and that there is a whole bunch of control steps that are relatively, relatively easy in our daily lives to, to, to manage. And that's that's kind of the how I've approached the entire pandemic and, and how I approach food safety in general. It, yeah, it's a, it is a really great question. I never really think about this. I. I, I like and so for someone who is um, is a music teacher uh, like Deep Chemicals, the things that I think about are, it, you know, I, I don't know um, if you've listened to Strong Songs at all, Don. This podcast, no, but I've heard you time. talk about it. Oh my gosh, it is like, and I, I know I've I've mentioned it a couple times before, but it's this podcast where um, the, this guy Kirk Hamilton deconstructs like you know popular songs and gets into. Just like, you know, this is the, the fourth, you know, uh, fourth progression of the chord. And the most recent episode that I listened to with, with my family was um, uh, Kiss by Prince, which is a great, great song. And I, I don't listen to music the way that Kirk Hamilton listens to music. Right. Right. Like I, I can't, I can't parse any of that stuff out. And so, so I, you know, I think when we, we all come at these things from our own expertise, I'm fascinated. Pro like I would be probably fascinated, not, not probably, I would definitely be fascinated to have a conversation with deep chemicals about how he approaches listening to music in the right, same way. Right. In the same we, way. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That we, we approach what we do. Um, and, and I, and, and it's not often, I guess that you think about how you approach it until someone asks you about it. So, so anyway, this is, it was, that, that, thanks for asking that question. 
Yep. Well, I think that's a show. I think that's a show. Um, so, uh, yeah, food safety talk. This is, uh, this is one of the shows that we do, uh, this is episode 217. Um, if you like what we do here, go check us out at a different podcast, risky or not risky or not.co. Um, we, all the show notes from this show will be posted at foodsafetytalk.com. Um, please follow up with us with any feedback. I think we're past our pandemic parking of a lot of feedback, as Don just mentioned. We're, uh, you know, we may not get to those ones that we parked. Sorry, but if you really want those questions answered, maybe we ask them. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, I think that's, that's it. So I uh, appreciate um, chatting with you. As always, Don, it's fun uh, chatting and, uh, and we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. schedule real quick huh yeah yeah totally and i left you left, left us both three minutes yeah. um and if you at some point i'm probably not gonna do like um uh be able to edit until after about 11 30 okay. like you could just upload the, vi- the file into dropbox yep, yep. Awesome. i will i will do that um and okay so we are doing risky or not on thursday we just are as a reminder um two weeks from today is the eight? Oh, you're doing better. Pro- I know what your schedule is that week. Better process control school. Exactly. Because uh, I've tried to schedule things twice now for you that week. Do you want to do something late next week? Like, or do you want to do it like the week? Like, do you want to skip a week? Do you have a window? I have actually have a lot of availability on the week of the 17th. So if you had a time that you wanted to do this, I could basically do any time that week. Yeah. So, uh, how about, so there's a better process school on Wednesday, but I'm not teaching. So, okay. Yeah. Um, I am free after 10 on Wednesday. So, and and basically any time after 10. Okay. So let's, let's do 10. Perfect. All right. And yep. Um, cool. All right. Well, uh, that was good. We did a whole bunch of food safety that time. It was almost all food safety. Whoa, that was cool.
Um, all right, I think that's it. If you, yeah, sh- throw throw stuff into Dropbox, and yep. then I'll, I'll I, I've got uh, I've an, <laughs> I have an IRB meeting this afternoon, so I think it's going to be short. We schedule three hours for these, but I don't uh-huh. think we're going to have need that. So I should be able to get this up before tonight. Great, cool. All right, we'll talk to you on right. Thursday. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.